Let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for raising up individuals to uh, buttress your church and to strengthen it and defend it and to defend its doctrines and its truths. We pray that you will uh, bless our time here, however brief, in discussing Gressa Machen. We pray that you will instruct us and, and um, give us courage derived from understanding what this man did um, in your church in years past. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm, uh, when Andrew asked uh, who I would like to cover for this uh, too brief, brief biography, I had a little trouble in coming up with um, Jay Gresson Machen um, because he's been one of my favorite characters in church history, certainly in modern church history, and I think that we can gain a lot from, from thinking about his life and some of the struggles that he dealt with. <clears throat> many of which are similar to what the church is struggling with today, I think. Um, it's J. Gresham Machen. The H is silent in Gresham. I always thought it was Gresham, but it's apparently pronounced Gresham. Um, he lived from 1881 to 1937. Um, he grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. He was the son of a prominent Baltimore lawyer his um, family was well-connected. It was fairly wealthy. Um, his paternal grandfather was a principal clerk in the U.S. Senate's secretary's office. Um, his mother was from a wealthy Macon, Georgia family, uh, a lot of money from cotton and from railroads, and he was raised Presbyterian. Uh, he made a profession of faith and joined the Presbyterian Church, a Presbyterian Church in Baltimore at age 15. His family was well-educated and promoted that among the uh, boys. Machen was, I think, the second of three boys. Uh, his father often read the Greek classics in the original Greek in the evenings to relax. Uh, they had many prominent guests in their home, among whom was Woodrow Wilson. It's uh, always bothersome to me that he's the, uh, well, I could go on about Wilson. I don't like Wilson. Um, <laughs> got 45 minutes here. I'll, <clears throat> I'll stop uh, there. Um, Machen went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. He earned very good grades. Um, he also enjoyed sports and what he called stunting. And I'm not quite sure what stunting was, but I think it might have been either some kind of highly dramatic telling of a tale or maybe physical stunts. I, I have no idea. Anyway, upon graduation, his family paid for him to take a tour of Europe. Must have been nice. He enjoyed climbing mountains and uh, toured museums. He was early in life ambivalent about his career direction, um, unsure what he was going to do. He spent another year at Johns Hopkins after he came back from Europe studying the classics. Spent a summer at the University of Chicago uh, studying international law and finance. 
He considered going on to study economics at Columbia University the following school year. Um, probably good that he did not, um, given what was coming out of Columbia at that time. Probably saved him from grievous error. Um, in 1902, upon being persuaded by his family's pastor, he enrolled at Princeton Theological Seminary, where he would spend uh, the bulk of his career. He had, he said, many serious misgivings about this move. Um, and he also took, at the same time, a graduate philosophy course at Princeton University, which is a separate institution. He said to his father, the ministry I'm afraid I can't think of. And uh, he had some complaints. He was not exactly a model student early on. He had complaints about the academic schedule, particularly about afternoon classes, which he thought were an evil invention. Uh, <clears throat> he's, I, well, he liked to go to football games, apparently, so that was in the afternoon, and that's what he wanted to do instead of taking Hebrew classes. Um, on a homiletics exam, he wrote that he had hoped that he hoped that he had hot aired as much as the subject required. So, but he apparently managed to impress his, his professors. He he won a prestigious prize for his academic work, um, which came with a year of study in Europe, um, paid for by the seminary, but he, coming from a family of means, decided to use his own money for that, uh, rather than rely on the seminary's funds. He had, when he was in Germany, uh, and this was 1905 to 1906, he had a crisis of faith. It had not exactly begun when he was in Germany, but he got to Germany and was studying under a man named Wilhelm Hermann, who taught uh, Rudolf Bultmann and Karl Barth, if you've heard of these individuals, um, kind of immersed in this neo-Orthodox um, school of thought, questioning the veracity of scripture, um, and what got him about Herman was that Herman apparently was a very, um, he had a lot of personal piety, not what he expected from someone who was not orthodox. And so that was, that was a, a problem. And Machen said later, it was not Germany that first brought doubts into my soul. For I had been facing them for years before my German student days. Obviously, it is impossible to hold on with the heart to something one has rejected with the head, and all the usefulness of Christianity can never lead us to be Christians unless the Christian religion is true. But is it true or not? That is a serious question indeed. He survived the challenge. He had some lingering doubts even after he returned to Princeton, but one of the lasting impacts of that German experience was that he respected the scholarly efforts of these people he was studying under in Germany. And when he got back to Princeton, he had a new appreciation for the scholarship that he had seen at Princeton, which he had kind of dismissed and acted with some flippancy toward earlier. And so he developed a kind of a personal mission to develop that scholarship throughout his career. He had received an offer to teach at Princeton when he returned. 
And uh, when he, he, he did take that on, he wasn't sure if he wanted to stay. He obviously did. Um, but he was discouraged initially by the students' avoidance of his courses. Um, he complained of, quote, the extremely low intellectual standard among the future ministers of the Presbyterian Church and said that they were characterized by true piety and high motives but deep ignorance. Um, students found his eccentricities endearing. If you're a professor, you have to cultivate a few eccentricities. He would sometimes lecture with a book balanced on the top of his head. He would sometimes kind of bang his head against the wall while he was teaching. Uh, and he would read the newspaper while his students recited Greek declensions and, uh, and then correct them, you know, mid-declension mid um, while reading uninterrupted. So he, he had these, these, uh, these things that students later remembered with some fondness. He said to his students, boys, there are two things wrong with this institution. You're not working hard enough and you're not having enough fun. And he apparently really enjoyed his students. Um, he was not married. He had lots and lots of time for students. Uh, unlike, for example, um, I think it was B.B. Warfield who was caring for his ill uh, wife for uh, much of the time outside of the classroom. He said, uh, the fellows are in my room now on the last Sunday night smoking the cigars and eating the oranges, which it has been the greatest delight I ever had to provide whenever possible. My idea of delight is a Princeton room full of fellows smoking. When I think what an aid tobacco is to friendship and Christian patience, I have sometimes regretted that I never began to smoke. Uh, I have a great admiration for, for Machen, um, and, and a lot of what I'll talk about in a, in a couple of minutes is really something that I think is, is profitable for us to, to reflect upon, but he was not without his flaws. Uh, in 1913, one of those flaws surfaced. Um, one of the blemishes on his character, if, if you will. He along with almost all the faculty, objected to having a black student live in the Princeton Seminary dormitories. In fact, he was um, not just passively going along with the crowd on this, he had a two-hour argument with his mentor, B.B. Warfield, about this. Warfield favored integration. Um, Warfield had a lot of stature in the university, or in the, in the seminary. Um, the, the seminary had admitted black students, but had paid for separate accommodations for them. And uh, Machen thought that was something that should continue. Um, we can write this off in a sense as being uh, part of, the, part of the, the culture at the time, but one would have hoped for better from somebody with Machen's education and his, um, uh, what he knew about scripture and his personal piety just did not come through on this issue. He was ordained into the clergy in 1914. He had delayed his own ordination due to some doubts about his faith, but those doubts I think helped him later 
um, in that he had some sympathy for younger students who had their own doubts. Um, uh, McAllister Griffiths in a memoir of Machen said, nor was he hard and full of censure against the young men who had to fight agonizing battles in their own souls before full certainty could be found. No, to them he was patience and help and tenderness. He knew the long dark hours of inner conflict when faith seems at its nadir and, no doubt, and doubt a mocking jailer. He knew these things because he had experienced them and because he too had walked that road, he could help others over its stony places. There were many who, while they took, uh, lightly took ordination vows without really meaning them, scoffed at Dr. Machen's insistence that such vows should be taken sincerely or not at all, and once taken, kept with fidelity. There was an interruption to his Princeton career at this point. Uh, World War I uh, broke out in 1914. The United States eventually became involved um, in the war. And so Machen, though he was um, too old to be in the infantry um, in combat, he did want to serve in some capacity. And so he joined the YMCA, uh, which was a, an organization that carried out most of the um, kind of personal ministrations to the, to the troops, um, American and French and English, in, um, in, in France. Um, so he went over to France with the YMCA. Uh, they did what later the USO would do for troops. Uh, but he would serve hot chocolate and lend out his personal books and sell magazines or provide magazines to the student uh, to the troops and uh, in, a, in other ways try to make their life a little bit easier. Um, and he saw some combat, uh, not personally, but he was up close to the front in, in this. He was shelled at various points. Uh, along with the troops. That's how sometimes the YMCA would have facilities that were actually in the trenches with the troops. Um, and uh, this, this um, affected him. Uh, he did have a, an appreciation, I think, for the hardships that other people had gone through after being through some of this with the troops, even though he was not carrying a rifle himself. After about a year and a few months in Europe, he returned to Princeton where there was a different kind of battle to contend with. The church was in the middle of an attack, uh, was undergoing an attack from modernists who were affected by the, uh, the, the thinking in Europe, who were rejecting the idea that scripture is true um, and who were trying to make the church's doctrines more palatable to the rest of the world. In 1921, partially in response to this, Machen published one of his first major books called The Origin of Paul's Religion. It was intended in part to combat an idea that what we were seeing in Paul's letters was uh, 
influenced by the culture around Paul and that Paul was simply inventing a new religion um, in, in, his, in his epistles. In 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Uh, very much opposed to the truth of scripture, the, uh, the virgin birth of Christ, the veracity of the miracles in, that we see of, that, that Christ did and, and that are elsewhere in scripture. Um, and this was, Fosdick's sermon was an objection to a 1910 document that the Presbyterians had adopted called the Five Point Deliverance. This was a statement that required new ministers to adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith and specific points of orthodox doctrine. And these were the virgin birth of Christ, substitutionary atonement, Christ's bodily resurrection, his miracles, and the inerrancy of scripture. And Fosdick uh, objected to this. He thought that um, it was possible to make remake uh, Christianity into more of a, um, a, a set of moral ideals than, than a historic uh, a truth that was embedded in historic um, events. Uh, to Fosdick and others like him didn't have to believe that Christ actually um, did miracles uh, or that he was born of a virgin. None of that was really essential to Fosdick. So this prompted Machen to begin working on um, this book, Christianity and Liberalism. If you read one book by Machen, this is probably the one to read. It's, um, uh, it's antidote even today even though it was written many years ago almost a hundred years ago it is I think full of some good insights that will help against a battle the church is still fighting uh, he also published that same year which gives you some idea of his work ethic uh, a book called New Testament Greek for beginners this one uh, I have not read this I have no immediate plans to start but I have it on my shelf to impress people, <laughs> as are most of my books, if I'm to be honest. Professors are expected to have personal libraries. Don't let the secret out. Yes, yes. Um, Machen, I would say, demolished liberalism in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. And notice the title. Christianity and liberalism. It is not about, um, it is not Christian liberalism because he regarded the uh, liberalism as non-Christian. This really rankled his opponents. They thought, well, you can be liberal and Christian. You, you don't have to believe all of these things to be a Christian. In 1924, a document went around the Presbyterian church um, called the Auburn Affirmation. 
This was a document opposed to the five-point deliverance, uh, signed by a number of, of uh, modernists in the church. And so in 1925, Machen published another response to this group called uh, What is Faith? Um, this was a, a sequel in some ways to Christianity and liberalism. He said, the next thing less than the infinite is infinitely less. He was arguing that if you take away the miraculous works of Christ, the miraculous virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture and God's uh, sustaining of his word over time and in history, then you've, you've lost the core of Christianity. Um, he said, the efficacy of faith then depends not on the faith itself considered as a psychological phenomenon, but upon the object of the faith, namely Christ. I had a, a student um, from another university write me to ask, this is a couple of weeks ago, asking if I would serve as a reader on his either master's thesis or doctoral dissertation, I can't remember which now. And his, I, he sent some of his work to, so that I could kind of see where he was going with, with his, his project. And basically he's a, he's a doctor of some kind, medicine, and um, he was pursuing a degree in philosophy or something related to philosophy. And his argument was that faith improves patient outcomes. Faith improves patient outcomes. Now, at first, this sounds like something we should just celebrate, right? So, yes, faith, faith helps us. Machen would have taken that, I think, and said, what kind of faith? Faith in faith? I mean, is, this, what, is it just faith absent Christianity that is supposed to be at work here? Is this simply a psychological phenomenon that is, uh, that is helping people? Or is it Christian faith in particular that is, um, that is helpful? Um, so as Christians, we can't just say faith is important. Everybody's got faith in something. It's Christian faith that is distinct. A significant problem during this time of controversy was what Machen called the indifferentists, which is a, not a word I had, had seen before, but I thought it's a, great, it's a great word. He meant moderates. Indifferentists favored unity and tolerance, except tolerance for Machen and people like that. Uh, you'll always find that exception. I remember in college having a conversation with some Unitarian Universalists. They had a table set up on you know, the day when you're supposed to go around and look at various student groups and decide which ones you want to participate in. And so I had a little conversation with them. I couldn't help myself. So I said, you, you, you believe that I, as a Christian, who am exclusive about um, salvation. I don't believe it, it's to everyone. I believe it's to those who have faith in Christ. 
would you tolerate someone like me in your group? And you could s sort of see the, the sort of, what? <laughs> and, and the poor kid behind the desk, I mean, or the table, she hadn't thought about this. She hadn't thought about it past 10 seconds. And, and uh, I, in, I was being kind of machinish, I, I think, although I didn't realize it at the time, because I, I think he, he took a little bit of pleasure in just kind of skewering liberals, and um, I, I, hope I'm, I hope my motives are right if I, if I continue to do that. But um, Nichols, Stephen Nichols wrote this biography of, of Machen, which um, if you're going to read a biography of Machen, I would say this is a great one to do, um, to work through. Um, I say work through, I don't mean to imply that it's a difficult read, it's really not. But uh, Nichols said, when Fosdick brushed aside doctrine for piety, he was not talking about tertiary issues, he was obliterating the very center of Christianity. The same dynamic troubled Machen when he considered the moderate response to liberalism. The logic of the moderate was that the liberal's heart was right, that there was value to be gained from his perspective. Machen's response was that a Christianity not built on orthodox doctrine was living on borrowed time, verging on becoming mere moralism. McCartney, and this is uh, Clarence McCartney, who was pastor of Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and a, and a moderator of the PCUSA in 1924, said, the movement is slowly secularizing the church, and if permitted to go unchecked and unchallenged, will ere long produce in our churches a new kind of Christianity, a Christianity of opinions and principles and good purposes, but a Christianity without worship, without God, and without Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's interesting that, that, you know, we look at this and we think, we're still fighting this right now. We're still seeing this. Machen said, Christianity is a doctrine, not a lifestyle. Princeton professor Charles Erdman was a key indifferentist. He was a moderator of the PCUSA General Assembly in 1925. He was not unorthodox himself but he tolerated and even advanced those who were. For example, two ministers who came before the General Assembly had denied the virgin birth. And Erdman turned the matter over to a committee for investigation rather than defrock them. Now, I, I would say, and, and this is another, I think, um, problem with, with Machen, uh, he himself was somewhat of an indifferentist on um, evolution. And uh, he got this maybe from B.B. Warfield, uh, who I think was of a similar mind. McCartney, whom I mentioned earlier, he was the 1924 moderator of the General, General Assembly, was a prominent Calvinist preacher um, maybe one of the better known ones in the Northeast at least. He was, as Gary North says, the conservative's representative large church pastor. 
In the early years of the battle, North says, he stood firm with Machen, but when push came to shove in 1936, he revealed himself as a representative of the peace seekers, the defenders of the religion of non-confrontation. He did what every large church Presbyterian pastor did, he surrendered. He had been an exclusivist in the 1920s, meaning he favored the five points of deliverance. Um, and he had led the fight in 1923 and 1924 against the modernists. But when the modernists and inclusivists gained total power in the church, he recognized that a continued defense of exclusivism would mean that he would be excluded by them rather than they by him. He capitulated. He retained his pastorate but lost most of his influence outside his congregation. And this takes us to... Um, one of the kind of turning points in Presbyterianism in 1926, the Princeton Seminary Board of Directors, which controlled the academic program, voted to promote Machen to full professor. This was a move which had to be ratified by the General Assembly, but which had never been challenged before. No man elected by the board had ever been vetoed by the General Assembly. Machen was the first. Liberals and moderates, including Erdman, managed to tarnish Machen's reputation by bringing up his views on prohibition. Machen was against prohibition. The General Assembly was strongly in favor. And by saying that he was harsh and implacable in his temperament. In 1927, the PCUSA General Assembly rescinded the requirement that ordained ministers affirm the five-point deliverance. And then in 1929, more political machinations. Uh, Princeton had a financial board of trustees and had a separate board of directors that oversaw the educational program. And liberals knew that they dominated that board of trustees. They did not dominate the board of directors. And so they thought, well, this is easy. We'll just merge the two, giving us an automatic majority in the educational decisions of the seminary, which they did. At that point, Machen realized that, that the battle was lost, at least at Princeton Seminary. There was nothing more to be done. He resigned from the seminary where he had spent 20-something years and really seemed to love it. Um, and he, along with some other conservative Princeton faculty and some students, left to move a few miles down the road to Philadelphia where they founded Westminster Theological Seminary. In 1930, which again is remarkable given that this is the right in the time that he's in, enmeshed in starting this seminary, which, by the way, he used a lot of his own personal resources, financial resources, to help fund the seminary. This was, not, this was not done without some significant personal sacrifice on his part. He wrote in 1930, or had published his magnum opus, which was called The Virgin Birth of Christ. It's about 400 pages. That, too, is not on the top of my list. But should you be interested in reading more on Machen, that was his greatest work. 
1933, um, he's, remember, he's at Westminster Seminary, so in one sense, he's out of the fray at um, Princeton. He started a group called the Independent Board of Foreign Missions. And this was in response to the increasing modernism and liberalism in the Presbyterian Church's Board of Foreign Missions. And he thought, why should we continue to fund a group that is giving way to modernism? They're not preaching the gospel of Christ. They're preaching a kind of a social gospel. They're going into foreign, foreign nations, and they are trying to help with the physical needs of individuals, which is, is fine, but they're not doing the core part of their mission, which is to preach the gospel and to preach the orthodox gospel and not some wishy-washy derivative um, or more accurately um, uh, a false gospel. So um, the Presbyterian Church's board had been supporting these missionaries. Machen didn't want to see the faithful congregants' money going to support this kind of thing. And so he started this independent board. One of the uh, motivating factors behind this was a report funded by John D. Rockefeller that favored a syncretistic, modernist approach to foreign missions. Uh, syncretism is a kind of a blending of faiths in the process, diluting to the point of non-existence the, the true gospel. This was supported by uh, Pearl Buck, whose name you might, might recognize. She, in fact, objected to the emphasis on the gospel and missions she said, I am weary to death with this incessant preaching. It deadens all thought, it confuses all issues, it is producing in our Chinese church a horde of hypocrites. And this is, this is the kind of thing that the Presbyterian Church is starting to find attractive and supporting to some degree. So in 1934, the Presbyterian General Assembly declared the independent board unconstitutional which had some implications for Machen's continuance in the denomination. In fact, the following year, because of his refusal to cave in on this, he was defrocked by the Presbyterian Church in the USA. Um, he was unordained, you might say. Uh, they, they um, made an appeal to the General Assembly the following year, 1936. This was rejected. And Machen and his friends were prepared for this um, rejection. They knew how things were going in the Presbyterian Church. They knew that this was a rear guard action at best in that denomination, that the trend of the denomination was spiraling down. It was, it was um, caving in on one point after another. They had already lost the denominational uh, seminary. And so on June 11th, 1936, 
the first general assembly of what would become the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was held. Machen was uh, the moderator at that general assembly. Um, it was actually the Presbyterian Church of America was the original name of that denomination, but they were sued later by the Presbyterian Church in the USA and renamed themselves uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, or OPC, which is still around today. Most of those churches are in the, in the north, although there are some in the, in the south. Uh, one of the things they, they did right away in the OPC is ensure that the property and assets of the local church did not belong to the denomination but belonged to the local congregation because what the denomination had done is said, okay, you want to leave, we're keeping your building. And any pension that your pastor had accumulated is now um, void. Um, we're keeping that too. And so the OPC determined that this was... Um, unethical. Um, interestingly, I mean, this is after Machen's death, but in 1938, the Bible Presbyterian Church split from the OPC over the issue of abstinence from alcohol and over eschatology. Uh, the OPC did not say that you had to be abstinent from alcohol, um, but the, uh, there were some in that group that, that thought that was appropriate. I'm running out of time, but uh, one of, the, one of the, my favorite personal things about Machen was his, his impact on social issues. Um, American society at the time that these battles were going on inside the church was, especially among the intellectual classes, was deeply skeptical of Christianity and was trying to overturn the Victorian morality and social norms that had roots in Christianity. Political and social reform was not the sum of Christian work, unlike what some of the liberals were saying. They remember the social gospel they were promoting in foreign missions and elsewhere. But cultural engagement was important, and that's something that Machen recognized. He said in Christianity and Liberalism, though Christianity is individualistic, it is not only individualistic. It provides fully for the social needs of man. He said, uh, the Christian man may not simplify his problem by withdrawing from the business of the world, but must learn to apply the principles of Jesus even to the complex problems of modern industrial life. He, he said, this is not Christianity, but it is the application of Christianity. And that's the difference. And Machen said that difference makes itself felt everywhere. So there, Nichols, um, whose biography I mentioned earlier, uh, said there were two principles governing Machen's thought on social issues. One is radical individual libertarianism, and second, a particular view of the role of both the church and the individual Christian in the public arena. So he opposed the formation of the Federal Department of Education. In fact, he testified before Congress on this. Uh, if you're interested in that, uh, this is a, a, a series of essays called Education, Christianity, and the State. Um, I think it's great, uh, done by Machen. Machen opposed the Volstead Act, which was the Prohibition Act. 
In fact, he was the only person in his presbytery to vote against a resolution supporting the 18th Amendment. He opposed the draft, military draft, even during World War I. He opposed the 20th Amendment on child labor because he thought it represented an intrusion of the federal government into what should be family governance over their children's time. He opposed teacher licensure. He opposed tariffs, copyrights, the New Deal, social security. You see why I like this guy. <laughs> Jaywalking laws. He actually found time to testify or to, or to, to give a, a, a little talk to his city council in Philadelphia opposing jaywalking laws. And this is, I think this is really interesting too in, um, in thinking about how to, we, we, we think, well, okay, how, how does Christianity fit into public education? And this is, this is where he, even today, you know, he runs counter to, uh, to Christians, uh, most Christians on this, on this topic. He opposed Bible reading or the teaching of morality in public schools because he recognized that teachers were predominantly atheistic, deistic, or liberal in their theological opinions. That's uh, Gary North's um, comment from his, his book on how the liberals overtook the Presbyterian church. Machen said, I think I am just about as strongly opposed to the reading of the Bible in state-controlled schools as any atheist could be. For one thing, the reading of the Bible is very difficult to separate from propaganda about the Bible. I remember, for example, a book of selections from the Bible for school reading which was placed in my hands some time ago. Whether it is used now, I do not know, but it is typical of what will inevitably occur if the Bible is read in public schools. Under the guise of being a book of selections for Bible reading, it really presupposed the current naturalistic view of the Old Testament scriptures. But even where such errors are avoided, even where the Bible itself is read and not in one of the mistranslations, but in the authorized version, the Bible still may be so read as to obscure and even contradict its true message. When, for example, the great and glorious promises of the Bible to the redeemed children of God are read as though they belonged of right to man as man, have we not an attack upon the very heart and core of the Bible's teaching? What could be more terrible, for example, from the Christian point of view, than the reading of the Lord's Prayer to non-Christian children as though they could use it without becoming Christians? as though persons who have never been purchased by the blood of Christ could possibly say to God, Our Father, which art in heaven. The truth is that a garbled Bible may be a falsified Bible, and when any hope is held out to lost humanity from the so-called ethical portions of the Bible, apart from its great redemptive core, then the Bible is represented as saying the direct opposite of what it really says. Uh, there's more I could say about his social writings, of course. There's, there's a lot that, I, I mean, he liked the gold standard, too. I mean, this, it's, this is great. So, um, lest you think of Machen as being 
just some kind of big brain that sat in his ivory tower all the time and wrote books. Think about his impact on a man named Richard Hodges. Ned Stonehouse, who was an early biographer of Machen, one of Machen's students, simply names this guy R.H. in his biography of Machen. Nichols says, Machen corresponded with Hodges, an alcoholic who lived in Princeton and came to Christ. And he did more than simply write to him. After Hodges became a Christian, he fell prey to his alcoholism. And on more than one occasion, Machen found himself searching the streets of Princeton in the middle of the night to rescue his friend. Eventually, Machen found him a new place to stay away from the friends and temptation of his old life. He paid his rent, virtually funding the elderly and unemployed Hodges for nearly 20 years, and even paid his funeral expenses at his death. And all the while, only a few knew of his efforts on Hodges' behalf. I'm out of time here, um, but I'll just say Machen uh, died after a brief bout with pneumonia on New Year's Day, 1937. He had been on a trip to North Dakota in the winter um, and uh, was headed there to support a church. He was 55 years old. Among his last words were a telegram that he sent to fellow Westminster Professor John Murray on the day he died, and he said, I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And I will, I will stop here since I'm out of time. I don't know if we have time for questions or not. No, sorry. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the example of the life of Gresham Machen. Um, we know that he was not a, a perfect man, but there's much we can learn from him, and we pray that you would give us the kind of courage that he had to fight the battles uh, for your gospel in our time, in our age. In Christ's name we pray, amen.